welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. Welcome to today's call on elections. Today's guest speaker is John Easter, Head of Research. John famously wrote a piece of research for us in 2016 called uh, Trump's Path to Victory. It really became a, a sensation in the investment community. We, we've called 2020, we called it the year of macro. Little did we know what that meant when we said it in January. But in January, we said it for a reason, because of the Trump election. And this year, I've never seen so many campaign themes change. We started the year off. It was going to be a referendum on the best employment numbers in generations. Then the campaign was going to be on COVID failure. Then it was going to be on reopening. Then it was going to be on civil unrest. Now defund the police. So the themes uh, keep evolving, and will keep evolving. We are in the summer. Election season, traditionally, Americans start paying attention in September, but, you know, we are fixated on public policy now because of the COVID crisis. What we will do is help give you a lens to understand, to get through the cluttered news cycle, and that's a D.C. perspective. And if you're not out and about sitting like I was over the weekend with the person that was Deputy Chief of Staff to Barack Obama involved in the Biden campaign. You, you know, if you're writing your article from somewhere else, not sitting across from someone, you're not going to have that perspective. So with that, I'd like to begin the questioning by, by John. Voting used to happen on a Tuesday. You had to take time off from work, drive yourself to the polls, perform your civic duty, and then get on to your job. Today, we have early voting, Voting is controlled not by the federal government. Each state does it differently. So talk about not only early voting, John, but talk about mail-in voting. Mail-in voting, we've always had absentee ballots. Why is mail-in voting different than the traditional absentee ballots, and how could it possibly impact this election? So mail-in voting is a broad term, and most people, I think, read the term and think, well, that just means you send your ballot in by mail. But we have 50 different states, and what mail-in voting means in any one locality is very different than what it may mean in a different locality. So there's a, then a debate as to whether mail-in voting increases the chances of fraud or not. Some states have been entirely mail-in voting for years, Oregon, Colorado. But what we mean by mail-in voting is critical to understanding what's going to occur. And I predict there's going to be chaos on Election Day and leading up to Election Day as people try to cast their ballot. If I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong. But I would be very surprised if we didn't see chaos. In some states, mail-in voting means that you get to request a ballot from your secretary of state or your elections board, and then there will be some type of verification that you are the person who is casting the ballot, and you give your address again and make sure that, that all your ducks are in order, so to speak. In some states, the Secretary of State or Elections Board is simply going to mail ballot to every single person on the voting roll. But we don't do a very good job of making sure that people on the voting rolls are, A, not dead, that, B, they haven't moved. And you can imagine when you move within a state, and every year tens of millions of Americans move, notifying your election board is 
often one of the very last things you do. I mean, sometimes it takes people months even to get to the DMV and get a new state ID. So we're going to have a lot of different systems at play on election day. And whenever you move to a new system, there's always confusion and implementation problems. And it doesn't matter what type of system that is. The other issue we're going to have is some states are still going to have polling locations, but they tax revenues down. And because we're expecting so many more people to vote by mail this year, a lot of states aren't going to open up the same number of polling places. So some people are going to go to where they're accustomed to vote, and they're going to find the doors locked, and they're not going to know where to go. And so that's another issue. Uh, there was a recent op-ed by a former senator from Colorado saying how this was an effort by the Trump administration to suppress the vote. You would think a former sitting United States senator would know that the White House has absolutely no control over where states decide to open polling locations. The other issue you have is you have different periods for voting. So in some states, you're going to have a full month to vote. In some states, you're going to have a much shorter window. So we're going to be having this election in many, many different ways across the country. John, I want to make some calls here. We could end up with a hagging chad situation in multiple states. It'll take time to count the ballots. They may be challenged. You can't read a signature correctly. It was properly filled out. You feel high confidence that we'll be in that type of dispute. I do. And in some states, the ballot will have to be postmarked by Election Day. In some states, the ballot will have to get to whoever's counting the ballot by Election Day. Even that's not uniform. And the reason we moved to the first Tuesday in November back in 1824 is because we had this problem. We had states voting for the presidential race in so many different ways that there was a lot of confusion. There were challenges to state sets of electors. And so Congress moved basically 200 years ago to try to come up with a at least some semblance of a uniform standard, and we're moving away from that. Now, the election day is set by federal statute. It cannot be changed by the White House. I've heard that rumor. But we are really moving away as a country from clearly set standards for voting. And this year is even worse than previous election cycles. I have one more observation. I talked to a U.S. senator this morning who actually ran for president, and we were talking about mail-in voting, and he said when he, he tries to make sure his children request absentee ballots, because of course they want to vote for their dad and their dad's friends, he says that he's got to bug his kids three, four times for them to do that. I have to pay a bill. I got to find the checkbook. I got to write the check out. I got to put it in the envelope. I got to find a stamp. I got to take it to the post office or find a mailbox since there aren't many left. All those processes lengthen that to like a week. Could be longer. So I'm not convinced that this is necessarily a stimulant for getting out the youth vote. And so we will see. We have a chart we will share with you that show you the different states and how they are organizing their mail-in voting and just to help you get ready for the potential confusion that will result. Well, I would just note there, there's the whole stamp question. So the post office is technically requiring voters to affix postage to their envelope. I don't know if envelopes are going to be provided with all these ballots, but arguably a stamp is an unconstitutional poll tax. So what the post office has said is that it will still deliver ballots that don't have the required postage, but then try to charge the local election officials for all of the overdue postage. So there's that issue as well. I think it's going to be a disaster, and I don't think it's necessarily empowering a larger turnout. I think that's going to be the surprise. 
Let's move on. When I spoke to the senator this morning, you know, we were discussing that those of us on the coast, this gentleman is not from the coast, tend to live in a bubble, okay? We don't see a lot of campaign ads. We don't live in a swing state. I live in the District of Columbia. John, you live in Louisiana. But I, I said to the senator, and he didn't push back on me, I said the Trump campaign feels non-thematic, doesn't feel like a machine that's rolling through the hinterland like it did last time. I mean, it seems disjointed. There's sniping at the top. Does it make a difference, John? I mean, the Biden campaign doesn't impress me either. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I do think polls will narrow, but I am beginning to see signs of a wave of forming. It's always very difficult to know when to look because traditionally, you know, as you said earlier, the campaigns really heat up September and beyond. But, you know, we have some interesting data points. So there were two polls out of Texas recently. I don't like either poll. I don't tend to trust newspaper polls very much. I like to go with reputable polling firms. One showed Biden with a five-point lead over Trump. The other showed Trump with a one-point lead. But we're talking about Texas. So even if you have a very badly constructed poll, the fact that you can get a poll, two polls like that, out of Texas is remarkable in and of itself. In recent years, we've seen Ohio and Iowa and Pennsylvania start to drift very slowly towards the Republican Party in terms of the, their total electorate. We've seen the opposite trend in Colorado, Virginia, and Georgia. Georgia. But we're seeing in much weaker polling data across the state. So, for instance, in South Carolina, Lindsey Graham will probably retain his seat, but he's having to really work at his reelection effort. We're seeing states like in Iowa, which are trending away from the Democratic Party or have been, starting to trend back towards the Democratic Party, at least for this election cycle. Last election cycle, when Ted Cruz ran in Texas, he had a narrower victory than most Republicans have enjoyed in that state for about 30 years. So I chalked it up to his feud with Trump maybe suppressing some Republican voters, as well as the fact that he tends to be a fairly acerbic and divisive character. It is true that Texas is trending a little bit more blue, but now that I'm seeing this same polling data again in a very different election cycle with different people at the top of the ticket, I'm really wondering if the Democrats really won't just sweep on election day. So I want to go state by state. Let's go state by state. Florida must win for Trump, okay? Big percentage of the voters there, swing voters are Puerto Rican, and, and the Puerto Rican voters did elect former Governor Scott to the Senate. John, any thoughts on that race? I don't, if it was held today, he would not win it. He would not win Florida today and cannot win the presidency without Florida. Bingo. Right there. So one, one issue with Florida is people tend to, when they poll, they say, are you white? Are you black? Are you Hispanic? That's really a very cumbersome way to poll Florida. You have Cubans, you have Puerto Ricans, and then you have Hispanics of other origin. And the communities really don't always vote together. So when I see a poll about Hispanics and, and, and you're not really breaking it down, like who are you talking about? Let's go state by state very quickly, okay? Georgia? Georgia, I don't think the Democrats are going to get Georgia this time around, but they have a very divisive, internecine Republican primary battle with Kelly Loeffler. But she was appointed. She is not won outright. And she came under some scrutiny for potentially trading stock on inside information about coronavirus. Those charges have not been pursued. They've been dropped by the Department of Justice, but it's not helping her. 
anything that divides Republicans in Georgia right now does provide an opening for Georgia. I think it will take about two more election cycles for Georgia to become a purple swing state. President Trump carried Pennsylvania by 55,000 votes, something like that. I've been told the Democrats have registered 250,000 more voters in the last four years. Republicans have have registered a a smaller number, less than 100,000. What are your thoughts on Pennsylvania? I think it's going to be an all-out battle in Pennsylvania, and Biden has a home state advantage, which is why he delivered a speech uh, from Scranton last week to remind everyone that he was born there and lived there until he was about 10 years old. So Biden is certainly making a play for the same cross-section of blue-collar white voters who voted for Trump, and, and he's come out with his Buy America proposal. The White House is accusing him of plagiarism. It's sort of an inside joke because that's why he dropped out of the presidential race in 1988. But it really did look to me when I looked at it, it looked like a naked play for Trump voters. In Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, Democrats are not going to make the same mistake that they made last time. But there's an additional complicating factor for Trump, which is that two of those governorships were held by Republicans when Trump ran the first time. They're now held by Democrats, and that can affect turnout. The the Democratic machine can assist with get-out-the-vote efforts in a way where you have a Democratic versus a Republican governor. So Florida still has a Republican governor. Uh, Good news for the Trump campaign there. But North Carolina, which is another swing state, now has a Democratic governor. North Carolina is another state that could go blue this time. And he he has to carry Pennsylvania. He carried Michigan last time. Very challenging. Arizona, he carried. Very, very challenging at the moment. Wisconsin, very, very challenging. They hope to pick up Maine and and New Hampshire and his insurance policies. The math doesn't work at the moment. As John said, you can't be up five points or have buying up five and Trump only up one in Texas without seeing an intensity for someone else besides the president. This is backed up by increased Democratic registration. I think, again, we'll have to see where the Trump base is. It's a long way from 37%. One last question, and we're going to go on to one more topic here. Swing voters, there just aren't that many anymore, are there? Well, there are, there are an increasing number of people who are either unaffiliated or who are not registered with a party. And, of course, not all states require party registration or even have it. But there are very few people who split their ticket. And most swing voters tend to vote one way most of the time. You're going to head to the polls. It is very unlikely, and you're going to vote for Biden, it's very unlikely you're not going to vote for, if you have a Senate contest, the Democrat in that Senate contest. Odds are increasing for a number of reasons that the Democrats can take the Senate. One is what John just said. Very few people split their votes anymore. The second reason is the Democrats are fielding a, a dream field of, of candidates for the Senate. Astronaut in Arizona, whose wife who was a congresswoman, tragically shot. Very popular governor in Montana. Perennial favorites are having a tough race. Susan Collins in Maine. So, John, how many seats Democrats have to flip in order to take control? They have to flip three if they gain the White House and four if they do not, because the vice president can break a tie. They may lose in Alabama, but the one bright spot on the horizon that Republicans could have used as an insurance policy, Trump has unhelpfully waded into the primary, which is tonight, which will, this the runoff for the primary is tonight. And I think Tuberville is, looks like he polls more weakly against incumbent Senator Doug Jones. So Republicans will have to spend money in that state, which they might otherwise not have had to spend. Let's sum it up. So we've got a couple challenges. 
going into this race for, for the president. Recruitment, number one. Financial, number two. Three, mail-in voting, which is, which is an unknown. And last, let's talk about it. I hear from investors that it doesn't make a difference. Joe Biden is going to be super moderate. You know, it's not going to change a lot of policies in the United States. I find that hard to believe. I, you know, my feeling is there's a tendency to come in and want to change it. What do you think about that, John? I mean, how radically different would a Biden president be? I think that Biden is going to try to be a moderating influence on the Democratic Party, but I think the Democratic Party is just moving leftwards so quickly that you'll still have to work and accommodate many of those views and the wishes of lawmakers. I think people are being very superficial when they say, well, both Biden and Trump like infrastructure, both want to be tough on China, both want to have Buy America or do other things for blue-collar voters. I think it looks the same way on paper, but just imagine for a minute that we actually had a, a Trump infrastructure bill. If we had a Biden one, it's going to look completely different. So the top line number might be the same, trillion, two trillion, but the content of it won't be the same. And you're going to staff an entire administration full of people in today's Democratic Party. And a lot of the Obama people will come back, but there are new voices. The Democratic Party is more to the left of where the Obama administration was. And I don't know that just because Biden has been a moderate that he can simply ignore where the party has taken itself. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.